You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The highly contagious Delta variant accounts for more than 51% of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. With some breakthrough infections now occurring in fully vaccinated people, health officials are assessing a timeline for booster shots and new vaccines. In this episode, Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, joins Washington Post Live to discuss where we are in the pandemic. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Our program today is titled Leadership During Crisis. And my guest is National Institute of Health Director Francis Collins. Dr. Collins, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to join you for this conversation. Looking forward to it. Well, I am too, and we always learn a great deal from you. I'd like to start with the latest news out of Tokyo, where the Olympics start on Friday. And we heard that an alternate member of the U.S. gymnastics team has just tested positive. Are you concerned that this global gathering of athletes could become a super spreader event? I think everybody's worried about that uh, with people coming from all over the world, uh, some of which are places that don't have access to vaccines yet. Obviously, the Japanese have responded by trying to very seriously limit the risk uh, by stopping any in-person attendance for spectators, but there's still a lot of athletes there. I understand about 80% of the athletes are vaccinated. That's the best way to protect against this turning into something worse. But obviously, this has got to be watched with great care. And presumably, anybody who tests positive is immediately isolated and their contacts are traced and probably also isolated if they had a high-risk exposure and they weren't vaccinated. Wow, yeah. So so it brings me to a question, actually, about breakthrough infections. Um, The CDC has said or said last month that I think there have been 4,000 people who were vaccinated who've had breakthrough infections of COVID. What exactly is the risk, given the rise in the Delta variant, to vaccinated Americans right now? Well, it's not particularly a serious risk of hospitalization, and it's very low risk at all of serious enough risk to result in ICU or death. But remember, when we learned that the efficacy of those mRNA vaccines, uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna, and the J&J vaccine, was pretty darn good. It was not 100%. We thought 95% was just amazing, but that does say it's possible for breakthroughs to happen. And that was before Delta came along. Delta probably increases that risk a bit. You know, I run the National Institutes of Health with 46,000 employees, and we have immunized as many of them as were willing to come forward, which was most of them. And we are also, because we do our own testing, seeing an occasional breakthrough and somebody was fully immunized. I will tell you, those people aren't very sick. They have mild symptoms. We've yet to see anybody really get in trouble. So I think what that says is, especially with Delta, the vaccines are still fantastically good, but it is possible for an occasional person uh, to get mild symptoms and to test positive for the virus. And probably during that period to be somewhat infectious, although probably not nearly as much as somebody who's unvaccinated where the virus has a much better chance of multiplying into very large numbers. So that's a really key point I wanted to ask you about. You think they could be probably mildly infectious. Are there a risk for their unvaccinated children and other family members who haven't been able to take vaccines? I think that is part of the concern because, of course, children under 12 at the present time are not getting the opportunity to be vaccinated. 
And uh, of course, people who are immunocompromised perhaps have had an organ transplant or who are on chemotherapy for cancer may have been vaccinated but not generated an effective immune response. So those folks are all in a somewhat more vulnerable place. But I do want people though to recognize that this notion of breakthrough in infections is actually quite uncommon. It is one of the reasons why in a high risk situation like Los Angeles right now, they're recommending once again, people put on masks when they're indoors, including the vaccinated people, just for the ultimate safety concerns. I know people are tired of masks, but it's not so awful to consider having to put a cloth mask on your face when you're inside if it's going to potentially stop what is right now looking like a pretty significant surge of infections, especially in places where vaccination rates are low. Well, I think uh, former Surgeon General Jerome Adams just tweeted that he worried that the CDC had been too relaxed about um, mask guidance again, that he thought there might be a you know, half, harmful return. Do you think that's true? Should we be masking up and should this be up to local governments or should there be some more nationwide guidance on the importance of masking? Well, this is a chronic challenge, isn't it, Francis? Because mm -hmm. there are all of these different situations and circumstances across our very heterogeneous country. And for CDC to try to come up with a recommendation that applies everywhere is just simply not possible. When they made their recommendation about being safe to take masks off if you're fully vaccinated, including indoors, that was before the Delta variant began to appear and before we realized how much of a hesitancy problem was going to exist in some parts of the country so that we might start to see a surge again. And now here we are starting to see it. But I think the local officials by now, having gone through this for a year and a half, are, are in a pretty good position to decide when you hit that threshold where you're going to say, hey, you know, in my community, we probably need to go one more step here and ask people to mask when they're indoors. So you're a data person. Are we gathering enough data about these mild infections um, to know when we should be making these decisions which have such an impact on, on the general public? It's a good question. We are gathering data and of course it's complicated to do so. I wish we had data on every single breakthrough, even if it's a very mild illness and also the ability in my perfect world as a researcher where you could actually sample uh, what is the viral load that they have in their nose and is that likely to be infectious to other people around them. We don't know much about that. CDC, given their limited resources, have basically decided they're not going to do much to pursue breakthroughs unless they're seriously ill. And then they're going to look at those because those are ones where you worry, oh, is this a variant that's even worse than Delta that has somehow evaded the vaccine protection and even made somebody very sick? And we do need to know that. Fortunately, we have not seen much evidence of that in this country. But it's all a matter of resources, and in a perfect world, I wish we had more information. So I want to ask you a little bit about the um, FDA's decision on when it would give full authorization to the Pfizer vaccine, and I guess January 2022 is what we hear at the moment. Why does it take so long? FDA has a tough job because they have to evaluate every bit of data, thousands and thousands of pages, boxes of information from Pfizer and from Moderna who have now asked for this full approval. And that's not just about safety and efficacy. It's also a whole lot of information about manufacturing. They have to be convinced that the manufacturing is being done with absolutely the most perfect manufacturing practices. 
and that the so-called CMC part of the application takes a while. I know FDA is working 24-7 on this. Uh, while you say January 2022, they're now committed to because of their required schedule, but I think most of us expect they'll get there sooner than that, maybe even uh, by the end of the summer. I think that will help, but everybody should understand there is really not any significant doubt amongst those of us who have seen the data uh, that this is going to happen. The, the evidence for safety and efficacy of these vaccines is already overwhelming, but FDA has to do their job. If anybody's holding back now because they're waiting for that full approval, I would say that's not really a good reason to wait. Uh, Delta is spreading, people are at risk, people are dying. This is one more little step to say, okay, it's really there, but it would not, in my view, be a sufficient reason to hold off now. We need to get Americans vaccinated. We need that 85 million people who are still on the fence to recognize what's happening here, to see how the deaths and the hospitalizations are happening 99% of the time on unvaccinated people and to say, I don't wanna be one of those. Okay, where can I go? I wanna roll up my sleeve. That's what we need to see happen. So, you know, we have this huge number of people who are still unvaccinated. And then Pfizer at the same time is asking about approval for a booster shot. CDC and FDA so far are reluctant to uh, say that's immediately necessary. What's the science here? Will we need a booster shot at some point, even if we don't need it right now? Nobody really knows about whether booster shots will be needed at the present time. I think it's fair to say they are not needed. But when you look ahead, going down the next six or 12 months, you have to consider that that might be necessary for two reasons. One is that the immune response to any vaccination can't be predicted to last for life. It occasionally does, like the measles vaccine is really good at that. But most of them do, over the course of time, lose a little bit of their potency. That's why you have to get a tetanus shot every 10 years. If you stepped on a rusty nail, you'd have to look and see, is it my time? And the same may well turn out to be true with these vaccines against COVID-19, because we have been looking at the people who got immunized earliest, which were those in the clinical trials that started a year ago. And there is a gradual decrease uh, in the level of their neutralizing antibodies. It's still at a very good level to be protected. We're not worried yet. And it's good enough to even deal with this Delta variant which is stressing uh, the immune system a little bit to recognize, but we're okay right now. But I could not tell you that six or 12 months from now, those levels might actually drift down into a zone where you couldn't be so confident that that person is protected. On top of that, there is this issue of whether there are other variants out there that we haven't yet seen arrive in significant numbers in our country. We're okay so far with alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. So far, the vaccines cover those. But what's coming next? There is a lambda in South America that I'm concerned about that we don't know quite as much about in terms of how the vaccines will work for it, although the early evidence suggests it should be okay. And who knows what comes after that? And eventually, anybody who studies viral evolution will tell you we may encounter a virus that is so different in terms of its spike protein that the vaccine-induced antibodies don't stick to it as effectively anymore, and then a booster would be necessary. 
either a booster of the original vaccine, which turns out to be pretty good at spreading its capability against other variants, or maybe even a booster that's specifically designed against the one that we're most worried about. So Pfizer has been looking at this, so is Moderna, so is NIH, believe me. And we don't wanna be caught by surprise here. If there's gonna be a need for boosters, we wanna have everything ready to go. Uh, there is some data, although very early and somewhat sketchy, uh, from Israel to suggest maybe there's starting to be an issue with the Delta variant just completely taken over Israel and people who were immunized in terms of protection against illness. Although, again, the people who are getting those breakthroughs are mildly ill for the most part. But that's still early to tell. CDC believes they will have better data about the U.S. in the fairly near future. We'll have to look at that pretty closely. But I think Pfizer got a little bit ahead of their skis here in making a public announcement about their plans to file for approval of a booster. It's really FDA and CDC, with some help from NIH, that needs to make that kind of judgment. And they're really clear. We do not need to have boosters offered right now uh, to people who've been fully vaccinated. They should be in good shape. You know better than I do that viruses don't respect national borders and um, people in the US are talking about boosters while many adults in the rest of the world haven't had an opportunity to have a first shot at all. How should we be thinking, and I know this is an issue that's been brought up by the World Health Organization, how should we be thinking about distribution of vaccines uh, for, in terms of equity and also in terms of efficacy? What's the best way to tackle this virus? Well, as citizens of the world and as people who have to think about everybody in the human family as part of our family, we really have to take on some responsibility here. It's a matter of compassion. It's even what you'd call a moral responsibility for us not to look only inward, but also outward. The Biden administration has now pledged 580 million doses of vaccine to be distributed between now and the end of the year. That will help a lot. But clearly, we also need to see vaccines coming from other places. And one of the things that some of us are working on is how to quickly increase vaccine manufacturing in those places that currently don't have it, uh, low and middle income countries. With a big push, we might be able, even within a few months or at least a year, uh, to do a better job of having that pipeline filled up more uh, by those places that could potentially do it, but haven't had the resources or the training to do so. But this is going to be a big, hard problem. When you look right now, Francis, at the world map, which I look at every day, I am deeply alarmed by what I see in the southern countries of Africa, South Africa, sure, Zimbabwe. And you can see how that seems to be kind of climbing up the continent, but skipping around pretty quickly. This delta is so incredibly contagious. You know, it only took about two months to go from a rare finding in the US to now being about 60% of the isolates, much faster than any other variant. And now that's happening in Africa. And it's happening in Indonesia, where you see at the moment, probably the worst situation in terms of new cases and deaths every day. And South America has their own really grim situation, not so much with Delta, but with other variants like this one I mentioned, Lambda, all of those places populated by people who are desperately in need of vaccines, and we should be doing everything we can to try to help with that. I want to ask you a little bit about a couple of items that have come up in the news. Um, 
One was last week, the immunization manager in Tennessee was fired and she alleges that was over political reasons. Um, it's not the first time we've seen political pushback against public health. How should we move forward? You're a scientist, you seem very clear about your own message, but how do we manage uh, misinformation and pushing forward against what are probably non-scientific messages? I worry deeply about the situation we're in. Uh, some could even say we have two epidemics going on in the United States. One is a biological epidemic caused by a terrible virus. The other is an epidemic of misinformation or maybe even disinformation that is confusing people and causing distrust uh, to emerge. I just saw a Gallup poll uh, this morning that I found quite troubling in terms of what it says about public attitudes towards science and particularly how those are tied up to politics. They compared public trust of science between 1975 and 2021. They didn't change a lot in 1975. In adults, 70% trusted science, now it's 64. I'm sorry to see that go down at this point. But then they looked by political party. In 1975, Democrats, it was 67% who approved. Now it's 79%, went way up. Republicans, Actually, in 1975, trusted science more than the Democrats, 72%. But now, wait for it, 45% of Republicans are trusting science. Now, I'm not a political person. I've never registered with a political party. I just find this deeply troubling that somehow your political party ties into whether or not you think science is capable of producing objective truth that you ought to be able to depend on uh, to guide you in your own life and to guide us as a society and as a planet. And it's clearly gotten to the place where that's not the case. We seem to have a real problem with uh, epistemology, which is of course the investigation of how you tell the difference between facts and opinions. And that is not a pretty place for us to be as a country. Just read Jonathan Rauch's new book called The Constitution of Knowledge, just about a month or so ago, pointing out all the ways that we seem to have lost our way, both in terms of the disinformation problems, the social media contributions to that. He also points out on the other side of the spectrum, the cancel culture that's also getting in the way of free exchange of views, which is what society needs in order to arrive an agreement about what we know and what we don't know. But it is a dark time for this. And if I'm worried about COVID-19, and I am, I'm almost more worried about where we're going as a country if we've lost the commitment to seeking out the actual truth of an issue and where opinions and social media conspiracies seem to actually carry more weight. That's not a society that has a very promising future. So Dr. Collins, you're not a political person, but you are a very religious person. And you and I have spoken before about finding common ground between religion and science. But I want to ask you specifically about the common ground between, if there is, between religion and public health at the moment. There were two lawsuits filed last month in uh, DC uh, by parents of children against uh, the city for vaccinating minors without parental consent, alleging that was a, a violation of religious liberty. Um, the Supreme Court has indicated um, in some of its analysis a willingness to um, put religious liberty before some disease mitigation uh, methods. 
How do you advise on things like this? Where is the common ground for Dr. Collins? Well, I saw that filing of the lawsuit and I don't know what the religious background is of the parents that are objecting uh, to having their uh, minor children able to obtain vaccines. You know, those uh, opportunities for minors uh, to choose vaccination without parental consent really got going with the HPV vaccine, which works best uh, in adolescence uh, and most effectively. But now here it's getting applied to COVID-19. You know, Francis, I do spend a lot of my time trying to understand the religion science interface. I started a foundation called BioLogos where a lot of those conversations are going on every day amongst really thoughtful people who are both serious believers in God and serious uh, trusters in what science can teach us about nature. And there are good paths forward there for those groups to come together or even to exist in an, a single person like me, because I am both a person who's going to demand to see your data if you're going to show me a scientific conclusion, but I'm also somebody who understands that science doesn't really have all the answers when it comes to things like purpose and meaning and why are we all here. So I've spent a lot of time talking to religious leaders in podcasts with people like Franklin Graham and uh, Rick Warren and um, Tim Keller, trying to be sure that the resistance to vaccination amongst believers, especially white evangelicals, is actually understood and perhaps dealt with uh, from a religious perspective. Because I think there has been a lot of misunderstanding there about why this would be something you'd want to do. Again, some concerns there about whether uh, this is something that's consistent with God's will. From my perspective, as somebody who prayed about these vaccines and then saw them come forward even better than we dared to hope, this seems like an uh, answer to that prayer, a gift from God, but a gift that you have to open in order to receive. I hope that has carried some weight. I think also evangelicals are susceptible to the same conspiracies about being chips in the vaccine syringes or whether there might be an infertility created, which there's no evidence for. Uh, all of those have to be faced directly. And of course, there's an overlap uh, between political persuasions and religious persuasions, especially now in our country, which is another thing that gives me a good deal of concern. Why should your faith in God predict what political party you're part of? Uh, certainly seems to predict it very strongly right now. Another thing to think about as far as where our society is going. So Dr. Collins, some of the people, the scientists who push back prominently, like Dr. Fauci, um, against misinformation have been threatened. And I've also heard um, from other scientists who've been worried about speaking up because of threats against them. Have you been threatened? I have. It's not been serious enough so far uh, for me to require the same kind of 24-hour security detail that Dr. Fauci requires or that um, a particularly um, um, effective young virologist uh, who was able to talk about the fact that the uh, Wuhan virus was probably not human engineered and now requires federal protection because of the hate that came forward. Yeah, what is that about? Again, when scientists, public health experts, people like Dr. Fauci who have put their whole life into trying to come up with answers uh, to save lives are now put in the position of being so readily and widely demonized uh, for political purposes, 
those who are doing so really ought to stop and ask yourselves, what am I doing here? Why is this the right thing to do? Why have we gotten to the point in this country where that seems to be such a compelling reaction to a public health crisis that has taken 608,000 lives and could readily take more in the next few months if we don't get all of our facts straight? Gosh. Um, the summer's coming. I want to think about looking ahead. Is it safe in your view for vaccinated parents to take their unvaccinated children on travels this summer? I think it is. I think they need to be thoughtful about the setting. You need to look and see exactly what is the current state of affairs in the place you're going. I'm not sure I would recommend going to Springfield, Missouri right now, which is having a terrible outbreak uh, of the Delta variant and a very low level of vaccinated people. So be sensible about that. And certainly vaccinated parents uh, for themselves uh, ought to be safe. Although, as we talked about earlier, maybe there's a small chance of breakthroughs. Certainly on such a trip, uh, one would wanna be sure that the kids are masked when they're indoors, just like they should be doing uh, in gatherings uh, closer to home, uh, just because they are not currently immune and could still be affected. And please, people, when you're saying, oh, well, don't worry about the kids, they don't get that sick anyway, recognize that they are generally not as susceptible to severe illness, but that doesn't apply across the board. More than 300 children have died of COVID-19 and many of them have been sick enough to be in the hospital. And there is this issue about long COVID where symptoms that you would have thought would go away after a few weeks are still there weeks, months later. And kids are susceptible to that too, giving them a great deal of difficulty in school because of brain fog and fatigue. You don't want your kids to get sick. It's not, I think, a great idea to say, oh, don't worry about them, they'll be fine. Most of them will, but not all. So another question looking ahead, many places of work are planning to bring people back gradually during the summer and a lot after Labor Day, just when we might expect a full surge. Is that a concern you have given these changing plans and the Delta variant? Again, I think this requires a close bit of attention to the local circumstances. Speaking for myself, again, as being responsible for those 45,000 NIH employees, we are considering uh, bringing people back in greater numbers by the fall, although we've tried so far to keep uh, everybody at appropriate physical distance and wearing masks indoors, and many of our staff have been working at home for more than a year. But it would be nice occasionally to have people in the same place. Science oftentimes depends on that kind of interaction that is a little harder to manage by Zoom. So we'll be doing that, but we'll be watching very closely and we'll be prepared if things start to go the wrong direction uh, to rethink. That's a message I think everybody has to now absorb that as much as we're all sick of this and as much as we had hoped to say, okay, we're done with this and let's go back to living the way we really wanted to before this, that is not a guarantee that this virus offers us. It comes up with variants like Delta, we make mistakes by not achieving the kind of herd immunity that we might have. And the rest of the world is still in the midst of just about as bad a pandemic as we've had for the whole year and a half. And as you said earlier, uh, the virus doesn't care about those country boundaries. So those kinds of things are going to affect us in various ways. So folks, let's be optimistic. Let's enjoy that freedom that we have while we have it, but do not assume that somehow we're all done with this and we can all go back to pretending it's over.
I think I have time for one last question that touches exactly on what you were talking about, how optimistic we can be. You talked to one of my colleagues the other day and you said we seem to be replaying the same movie we've been through so many times with these surges. Are you optimistic that we've learned any lessons from the past ones and can do better as we move into the fall? I'm glad you asked, because I think I'm coming across pretty darkly here in this conversation <laughs> just by trying to convey the seriousness of our situation. But I am optimistic that we've learned a lot. We've learned how to actually treat people who are sick with COVID, and we are much more successful now with drugs and with management in the hospital and outside the hospital with monoclonal antibodies to save a lot of lives that way. We didn't have that with those early surges. We really didn't know what to do. And the vaccines have just been an amazing achievement, historic. Uh, coming forward in just 11 months, nobody, including me, uh, thought that they would be as good as they are. And now that we have 68% of the US population having achieved at least one dose, we are in a much better position. We're not gonna have a countrywide surge across every state and every town. And, it's going to be these local outbreaks now in places where vaccine rates are really low. I'm hopeful, and I'll be optimistic again, that we're not done with the successfulness of convincing the hesitant people to go ahead and roll up their sleeves. Um, we're going to keep making the case. We're going to keep expecting that people are able to push the reset button on some of those false stories that they've heard and get started again. So I think we're going to be mostly okay. We could be more okay if we did a certain number of things, but we're going to mostly be okay. Dr. Francis Collins, thank you so much for joining me for what was, I know, a sobering conversation, but I was delighted to finish on that lighter note. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. We will be back. You can check on WashingtonPostLive.com for news about upcoming programs. There are full details there about how to register. I'm Francis Steed Sellers. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.